Last week, we embarked on a new study that we have entitled God of Wonders. And we began our series by making an appeal to the God-centeredness of God. And let me just warn you that as you move into the marketplace of ideas and you begin to not only believe in the God-centeredness of God and embrace the God-centeredness of God, if you begin to promote the God-centeredness of God, you will, you will receive strange looks from people. You will hear strange responses from people. And some of those people are people who profess to be Christians. You see, the God-centeredness of God, the very notion of the God-centeredness of God is counterintuitive to people. We have been raised in a culture where I am number one, where we pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps, that we live in the land of the free and the brave, and that we have the right to certain kinds of things. Well, we need to remember that the most important being in the universe is not you and not me. The most important being is none other than God himself. And so Tozer writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He continues, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most sobering fact about any person is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. You see, the way we view God, the way we perceive of God, it influences everything. The way we view God influences the way we parent. The way we view God influences our work ethic. The way we view God influences the way that we relate to our spouse and the way we relate to our friends and the way we relate to our teachers and police officers and, and lawyers and people in the so-called marketplace of ideas. The way we view God, most of all, influences the way we worship. Now, last week, we concluded our time together by suggesting some very basic but very important principles for our approach to God, or the notion of thinking about God. You might call these, these principles the ABCs of theology. You remember that A is always distinguish between the creator and the creature. One writer puts it this way, to think of the, cre the creature and the creator alike an essential being is to rob God of most of his attributes and reduce him to the status of a creature. And so last week I gave very concrete examples of people who violate the creator-creature distinction. Some of those people are people who claim to be Christians. Let me tell you at the outset that if we ignore, if we violate the the creator-creature distinction, we do violence to the character and the being of God. And so A, we always distinguish between the, the creator and the creature. B, we banish idolatrous thoughts about God. And of course, we know Scripture is clear in the prohibition against idolatry, which not only includes the prohibition of worshiping other so-called gods, I mean, little g-o-d-s, but... 
Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 make it abundantly clear that to worship God via images is strictly pro, uh, prohibited. John Calvin perhaps said it best in the 16th century that the human heart is like an idol factory, pumping and pumping and pumping idols. And certainly he was correct. Letter C and the ABCs of this scheme, we commit to thinking biblically about God. I want you to know that that's my heart in this series, that as we move into the next 25 weeks of this study on the attributes of God, the essence and the being of God, that we would commit to thinking biblically about God. Unfortunately, I believe that we find ourselves in a period of church history where many Christians, and I choose my words carefully, many Christians are not thinking correctly or biblically about God. Why is it in our culture that a pastor would have to hold up a book and say, this is a bad book about God. Throw it into the ash heap. Why is it that a pastor would have to confront a book that, that promotes the lie of panentheism, that the universe includes God? You see, that, that denies the fundamental creator-creature distinction. And so here we are together, making a commitment to thinking biblically about God. As we think biblically about God, one of the most important ways to do just that is to embrace a very, very important doctrine. And of course, that is the doctrine of the Trinity. The title of the message this morning is The Holy Trinity, Unity and Diversity. And we are about to discover that the answers to life's deepest questions reside in one God who reveals himself in three persons as we wrestle with the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me say by way of introduction that as we move forward, I remember sharing the just a, a few tidbits of this message with, with a friend a few days ago, and he said, you're going to do one message on the Trinity? <laughs> and I love that because I recall a class that I actually taught in this auditorium over two years ago on the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, that was a 13-week class, and I hope your response would be something like, only 13 weeks? Because we need to know that there is not an end to the doctrine of the Trinity. Because as we will learn in future studies, God is eternal. God is infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. And so these are subjects that know no end as well. Let me say also by way of introduction that what I will present this morning, some of you will probably say, I've heard much of that in the past whether it was for me or someone else. And so for some of you, this will be exceedingly basic. But let me just encourage you that we can never return too many times to the basics and the fundamentals of the doctrine of the Trinity. Some of the rest of you will struggle this morning. You will hear terminology that you have never heard before in your life. You will hear words and phrases that you have never heard before in your life. And what I have experienced in pastoral ministry is, is this. People in the church have a tendency that when they hear a term they fail to understand, 
they close off. They say, I've never heard that term and I'm not going any further. Let me give you a a gentle warning not to do that this morning. That if you hear a term, if you hear an idea that is foreign to you, that instead of shutting your mind off, that you would you would ratchet it up and then you would ask why Why is it so important for the pastor to present these new terms? And I pray that by the time we come to the end of our time this morning, that you will be blessed, that you'll be be enriched, that you'll be encouraged, that you'll be edified. I can't think of a subject that I would like to talk about more than the doctrine of the Trinity. So let's pray together as we open God's word. Holy Father, we thank you for... What lies before us this morning as we uncover just just a bit of your holy character, the one God who reveals himself in three persons. We thank you for those in church history who who didn't discover the doctrine of the Trinity or make it up, but they uncovered it. They uncovered a truth that has existed from all eternity. So thank you for men like Tertullian the man who coined the term Trinity for articulating this beautiful, beautiful reality that is beginning to unfold in the Old Testament, but becomes manifestly clear in the New Testament. And so for those who are here this morning, who will find this as a bit of review, I pray that you would encourage them, that you would challenge them, that they would resist the urge to turn off their brains because they've heard it all before. And for those who are newcomers to this subject, and there are many, I pray, God, that this truth, this reality that we will explore this morning would be encouraging, that would be inspiring, that it would prompt each of us to, to go after you, the holy God of the universe, to go after you in worship, to submit to you, and to surrender to you afresh. We ask that your spirit, the third member of the Trinity, would be our teacher this morning, and that you would do good things here in your house. For it's in the worthy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, it's a strange, strange place to start in a message on the Trinity, but I want to begin this morning with a citation from one of the most well-known atheists in the last hundred years. Some of you recognize the name of the man. He was born in 1905 and he died in 1980, the French thinker Jean-Paul Sartre. Mr. Sartre said, quote, The basic philosophic question is that something is there rather than not being there. You say, I need an aspirin for that one. One more time. The basic philosophic question is that something is there rather than nothing being there. In other words, Jean-Paul Sartre really gets to the core of the matter. He begins by asking questions that are implied in this citation. He would say something like this, what exists? I think it'd be a better way to say who exists. And built into this question is the second notion, that is, where do I find meaning? 
Please understand that if you are a Christ follower, that this is what hordes of people are asking in our culture. Where do I find meaning? Some people find meaning in drugs. Other, find pe- other people find meaning in alcohol abuse. Some well-known, uh, well-meaning people seek meaning in relationships or uh, a career or a hobby. But people are after this notion of meaning. And then finally, Jean-Paul Sartre insists that we recognize where we can find truth. And again, our families and friends who are not yet Christians are asking this question. How can I know truth? It probably doesn't surprise you when I tell you that I am absolutely fascinated by these kinds of questions. I hope you are too. All of which are addressed in Scripture and all of which are addressed in our newly etched doctrinal statement at Christ Fellowship. I want to read one section of that doctrinal statement to you, and it'll be pasted on the PowerPoint before you this morning. It goes like this. God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The statement goes on to say that they execute, that is the Father, Son, and Spirit, they execute distinct but harmonious roles in creation, providence, redemption, and consummation. And the last section of the statement says, they are, that is, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are equal in nature, attributes, and perfections. The holy triune God is worthy of our worship, confidence, and obedience. I want you to imagine this morning that you were to take a trip next weekend to the beach. I want you to imagine, as this photograph was taken of of my son, actually, on the Oregon coast, that you were to go to Cannon Beach and you were to look, by the way, is where I proposed to my wife, and so we kind of have this deal with Cannon Beach. And uh, I want you to imagine that you go to Cannon Beach and you look down the absolutely mammoth beach, and you look at those billions and billions and billions and billions of little specks of sand. Here's the question. How long would it take to thoroughly and exhaustively examine every speck of dust on that beach? That is the answer. You know, I did not see one head nod. I didn't see one hand move. I didn't see one mouth drop open. It was just, Pastor, I got nothing. Because it would take... Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Today, we are going to do our best in the next several minutes to examine one or two grains of sand on that beautiful beach that point to the reality of the one God who reveals himself in three persons. Let me say that the doctrine of the Trinity is an an absolutely essential element in the Christian worldview. I have to tell you that I am flabbergasted when I have Christ followers ask me, is it essential to believe in the Trinity? I think the better question is, can you be saved from hell 
and reject the doctrine of the Trinity? And the answer is no. If you reject the doctrine of the Trinity, you will lose your soul. It is that important. The Trinity is a crucial, a crucial doctrinal reality that will help us to come to the place where we can worship God correctly, where we can worship God rightly. One of the men who was a student of the scriptures and who was a, a student of the doctrine of the Trinity was a man who was born in 354 A.D., Aurelius Augustine who became known, as, in my humble opinion, as one of the greatest thinkers and greatest theologians in the history of the church, loved to study the Trinity. He wrote a book on the Trinity alone. And here's what he says, and I have labeled this as Augustine's double-edged sword of danger and adventure. See if you sense the danger and adventure in this quote. St. Augustine says, and I would make this pious and safe agreement. Above all, in the case of those who inquire into the unity of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. Close quote. Here's what Augustine says. Be careful when you study the Trinity because there are some dangerous paths that you might take if you get the doctrine wrong. We will explore a few of those paths this morning. But on the other side of the coin, Augustine says that it is a, a wonderful doctrine to explore. It is a doctrine that brings peace and joy and satisfaction in the Christian life. Indeed, the discovery of this truth is one of the most profitable things that you will ever enjoy in your Christian life. It's what I like to call the, the beauty of the beach and the danger of the tsunami. I was talking with my sister-in-law who lives in Seaside, uh, just, just several feet, several hundred feet from the ocean, from the Pacific Ocean. And we got talking about tsunamis. And uh, that's something that we have heard about in the last couple of months as the article in The New Yorker was released that said there is a chance that in the next 10 or 15 years that a massive tsunami and earthquake will strike the northwest that will utterly devastate everything on the west side of Interstate 5. And of course, in my little pea brain, I'm asking myself, what's the elevation of Everson? What's, what's the sea level of Everson? And how fast can I run? <laughs> how many of you are doing the same thing? <laughs> how fast will my car go? As I talked about this with my sister-in-law and talked about the prospect of a tsunami, she just said, well, my husband and I have decided if there's a tsunami, it's kind of like a bon voyage. <laughs> We're out of here. Because it would be complete devastation. And so I entitled this, the, the beauty of the beach and the danger of the tsunami. And so as we walk along the beach this morning and gaze at the beauty of the Holy Trinity, let us be very aware. More specifically, let us beware of every variety of theological danger. Everything from riptides to tsunamis. So let me give you a preview of where we're going this morning. I want you to see three things this morning. First, we will spend the majority of our time looking at the reality of the Trinity. Then we will move on 
to discover the unique roles of the Trinity. And we will close our time together by looking at our response to the Trinity. So first, the reality of the Trinity. There is one famous theologian who said this, as he that denies this fundamental article of the Christian faith may lose his soul. So he that so much strives to understand it, that's you and me, may lose his wits. Isn't that something? And so would you look with me humbly at the reality of the Trinity? I want to begin by looking at a definition. This definition is by a a man I greatly respect, a man by the name of James White. It's the definition I have used for uh, almost 20 years now. I have not found a better definition than this. It reads, Within the one being that is God, there exists three eternally co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So I want to begin by walking through this definition and beginning right here by seeing that we worship, and I hope you can all see this, especially in the back, we worship one God. And in order to be a bit more technical, when you say that you're a person who believes in one God, you say that you embrace the notion of monotheism. We all know what theism is. That's the belief in God. We also know what the prefix mono means, one. And so I hope this morning that you are all monotheists. You believe in one God. Would you open your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6? And this is where I like to begin with the, the Jewish Shema. The Shema. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel. Do I have your attention? The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. It might be a bit of a challenge, but move forward several books uh, to the book of First Kings. First Kings chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8 verse 60. I'll give you a minute to find that. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 60, we once again see the fundamental reality of monotheism. And the text reads, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like the Shema. The Lord is God. There is no other Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Now, please understand that we live in a culture that to read a verse like that, to read a verse like Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, that says there is one God is is nonsensical to some people. We live in a a culture that is drowning in polytheism. That is the belief in many gods. Do you know that in the religion of Hinduism, there is not one God. There are not two gods. It's not a dozen gods. It is a pantheon of gods. There are a multitude of gods in Hinduism. 
Or you consider other world religions. The one in particular I have in mind is actually a religion committed to monotheism. One God. It is a false religion. Its name is Islam. Islam worships a little G-O-D by the name of Allah. Allah, unlike what many are saying in our culture, is not equivalent to the God of the Bible. Allah is a false God. And so we recognize this truth of monotheism that promotes the notion that we believe, according to the word of God, that God is the only God. Yahweh is the only God. Would you look over at the book of 2 Kings? Move from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, chapter 19, verse 19. 2 Kings 19.19. 19. And so now Hezekiah prays, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Yahweh, are God alone. The truth, the fundamental reality of monotheism. Turn also with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. Or let's, let's begin in verse 43. And those of you interested in evangelism to, to friends and family members in the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, Mormons. Uh, this is where I generally begin my discussion. I generally ask if they believe the Bible. Yes, we believe the Bible. Do you like the Old Testament? Yes, we like the Old Testament. Do you like the book of Isaiah? One Mormon I talked to said, that's my favorite book. I said, good. I love it too. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Go over to chapter 44, verse 6. This says the Lord or thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And are you my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Turn over to chapter 45 and look with me at verse 22. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Again, talking to Mormons here. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I'd love for them to read it out of their Bible, out of their King James, so I can hear it from their lips. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And we stop. And I ask my Mormon friend, do you believe those scriptures? Yes, I believe those scriptures. May I follow up with another question? Yes, you may. Do you believe the law of eternal progression? Yes, we do. 
that says, as man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. Yes, we believe that. Then I said, well, which is it? Because if you believe that, you can't believe Isaiah. If you believe Isaiah, you can't believe in the law of eternal progression. And that's when the debate ensues. You see, in Mormonism, the word of God is not the highest authority. The Book of Mormon is the highest authority. And the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price and Doctrine and Covenants is not a monotheistic set of books. They are polytheistic. There is a a pantheon of gods in the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Now, it may surprise you, as we rail against polytheism, that there is, in fact, a danger of overemphasizing the unity of God. We'll talk more about this in a moment. But uh, C.S. Lewis insightfully adds in his famous book, Mere Christianity, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. Would you agree with, with Lewis at that point? People love to say God is love. Would you raise your hand if you believe that? Not that you believe it. We all believe it, right? God is love. But you hear people who love to utter that phrase, God is love. We agree. He continues. But they seem to not notice that the words, quote unquote, God is love, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. I hope that the light just went on for several of you. I've never thought about that before. So we begin with this fundamental reality of monotheism. We believe in one God. Then I want you to see in the doctrine of the Trinity that we believe in three persons. We have discovered those persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen says it like this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God... God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. We see three persons emerging in the Great Commission, where Jesus told his disciples and all following Christ followers as we are, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son And of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we examine the three persons, just in a very basic way, recognize that the three persons are distinct. This is the way I like to put it The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son or the Father. Dave Steele is not Jerene, Jerene is not Dave Steele. Thank goodness, right? Two of me? Not cool. But we're we're distinct. You and your spouse, you are distinct. Yet, in the doctrine of the Trinity, while the Father, Son, and the Spirit are distinct, the three persons are, this will be number three in our model, they are co-equal, and they are co-eternal. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal. Begin quickly with the Father. The Father, you see, is eternal. We see the Father in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see Jesus in the New Testament uses God and the phrase Heavenly Father interchangeably. 
when he speaks of the heavenly father, he speaks of God. We see that the deity of the father, the fact that the father is God, that is affirmed by Jesus Christ. That is affirmed by by Paul and Peter and the other apostles. And then we see that the son additionally is eternal. And this will be important for us to remember. The son is eternal. A bit of a review if you go to the gospel of John. John chapter 1 and there are many, many verses that we could look at. We'll stop at verse 1 or chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. But you remember in our study that we learned together in the beginning was the word, the logos. In the beginning was Jesus. And the word or Jesus was with God, face to face with God. And the word Jesus was God. He, the Logos, Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. That is Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him, Jesus, was life and the life was the light of men. And we conclude, without looking at a multitude of other scriptures, that Jesus, Jesus possesses all of the attributes of God. You name an attribute of God. And we will, again, take the next 25 weeks and learn about some, not all, of the attributes of God. Any attribute that we learn about together, rest assured, Jesus possesses that attribute. I shared in class in Veritas this morning about an article that I wrote several years ago about the omnipresence of Jesus. And a, a good friend of mine knocked on the door of my study and said, I, he was bent out of shape. He says, I can't believe that you say that Jesus possesses the attribute of omnipresence. And I looked him in the eye and I said, my friend, if Jesus doesn't possess the attribute of omnipresence, Jesus is not God. If Jesus does not possess any of the attributes of God, then Jesus is not divine. That is to say, Jesus is not God. Moreover, we look at the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit possesses all of the attributes of God. He, as well, is eternal. In Acts chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, and you, you know the story well about Ananias and Sapphira. The text says that there was an, a piece of property, it remained unsold, and it did not remain your own, says the writer. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have con- contrived this deed in your heart? Notice, you have not lied to men, but God. He's speaking now of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, along with the Son and the Father, possesses all of the attributes of God. So let me sum up. We have... The notion of one God who is revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and the Spirit. And those three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. One of the church fathers grabbed onto that reality and he wrote the following. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole. And my eyes are filled and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. 
When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch, and I cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Hence, Gregory, the church father, commonly referred to the Trinity in terms of blazing, dazzling light. And all I have to say to that is, wow, this is incredible. And I want to move from the definition briefly and look at the danger of denying truth. The danger of denying truth. And, and I, I hope you can remember this model in your mind for whenever a person denies the reality of monotheism, that has implications. You see, when you deny a doctrine, we don't live in a vacuum, do we? When you deny something, you by definition affirm something else. You can't just say, I don't believe in monotheism. Your friend would say, then what do you believe? And so a person who denies monotheism may believe in polytheism. Now, there are several other things that he or she may believe. This is one of them. A person who actually believes in a God, if that person rejects monotheism, that person may, as a result, believe in polytheism. Now, there's a danger also of the person who decides they, they don't want to believe in three persons. And there are many people in our culture who do this. When a person rejects the biblical truth that there are three distinct persons, what they do is they believe a position referred to in church history. And here's one of those words I referred to earlier as modalism. Modalism. There are several words for it, but that's the big one to remember. Modalism. Modalism believes in monotheism. They believe in one God, but here they overemphasize the unity of God. They so strongly believe in one God that they end up rejecting the three-person distinction in the Trinity. They maintain that the distinctions Father, Son, and Spirit are not real distinctions as persons, but rather that they are distinct roles which the one God plays successively through different periods in church history. And so it plays out like this. You remember Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And who did he pray to? He prayed to the Father. I will never forget the time. I was teaching a class years ago, and I asked that question. Who was Jesus praying to? And one of the elders raised his hand, and he said he was praying to himself. And I thought to myself, I've got a big conversation ahead of me this week. Jesus was not praying to himself. Jesus was praying to the Father. You see, my friend, and he's a dear friend of mine, he didn't realize that when he said he was praying to himself, that he was subtly embracing the heresy of modalism. Jesus was praying to God the Father. And we need to remember that. And then finally, whenever a person denies that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are co-eternal and co-equal, they subtly embrace another error. I believe on the screen we call it subordinationism. And that's a big word you don't necessarily need to write down. I would encourage you to write down this word, though. That when a person denies 
that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, they subtly buy into an ancient church heresy known as Arianism. Now, Arius, Arius was a, a bishop. He was a, a pastor in church history. And he came to the conclusion that Jesus was a mere creature. That Jesus was not divine. Jesus was not eternal. And I would submit to you, along with every other church father and every other Orthodox theologian in church history, that if Jesus is not divine, that if Jesus is not eternal, we all go to hell. We all go to hell. And so Arius, while he may have had good motivation, was a rank heretic. Arianism. The view that maintains that the Son is a created being who was brought to existence via the Father. And there's a third thing I want to look at briefly, and that is the distinctions. The distinctions we, as we discover the reality of the Trinity. Now, hold on with me just for a few minutes. This is where it gets a little bit technical. Some of you are going, it's already technical enough. Brace yourself. There's two distinctions I want you to see. And the first is what theologians refer to as the ontological trinity. There's a big word. The word ontological comes from a little Greek word, O-N-T-O-S, ontos. That's the word being, being. So each of us this morning possess ontos. If you're here and you're breathing, even if you're asleep, you possess being, right? So when we talk about ontology, we suggest that the study of ontology is the study of being. Here's what we find. We find that the three persons, as I've already suggested, are co-eternal and co-equal. That is to say, there is complete equality among the members of the Godhead. The Father is not greater than the Son. That's what many people are taught growing up in the church. The Son is not greater than the Spirit. Why? The Scriptures tell us time and again that the three members of the Godhead are co-equal and co-eternal. But here's where we distinguish, and this is a helpful distinguish, that influences our marriages, our relationships with our employers, and a whole lot of stuff as we walk around in our community. That is what theologians refer to as the economic trinity. Now, this has nothing to do, my daughter's taking uh, economics at Corbin University. This has nothing to do with macro-econ or micro-econ. The economic trinity is referred to by some theologian as the so-called ordering of activities. The ordering of activities. And so here we make an amazing discovery that the Son, according to the economic trinity, which is found in Scripture, the Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Son. And so we find that there is order in the trinity. But remember... The Father is not greater than the Son. The Son is not greater than the Spirit. But we see submission in the Godhead. Down the road, we can look at some of the practical implications of this. Men, you know, you are not greater than your wives. Some of you may think you are. You're not. You are equal before God with your wife. However, men are told very clearly in Scripture that they are the head of the home. 
That women are to respect the authority of their husband, dare I say, submit to the authority of their husband. Children are no less than mom and dad. You are equal with your mom and dad. But Ephesians chapter 6 tells you to do what to your parents? Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And Ephesians 6 says it comes with a blessing. It all is derived via the doctrine of the Trinity. Jonathan Edwards observed, Though there be no difference of degree of glory or excellency, yet there is order in the Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity may be looked upon as a kind of family, so there is order. Thus, the Father, though he be no greater than the Son or the Holy Spirit, yet he is in the first order, and the Son, and next and last, is the Spirit. So I want you to see that while... The Father, Son, and the Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal. There is what we call economic subordination. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. Second, and I promise part two and part three are, are much shorter. But number two, I want you to look with me at the roles of the Trinity. And really, this is not an accurate description. I want to look at one role of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. If I go back to the doctrinal statement, it reads as follows, that they, that is the Father, Son, and the Spirit, execute distinct but harmonious roles in creation, providence, redemption, and consummation. I want to take a look, a snapshot look at one of those areas. I want to look at redemption. And so I want to look briefly at what is the Father's role in redemption? What is the Son's role in redemption? What is the role of the Spirit in redemption? Begin with me by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll begin by looking at the, the role of the Father in redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the, the distinction between the Father and the Son, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, that is God the Father, chose us in Him, that is God the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He the Father predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You say, why did he do it? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We see here that the role of the Father in redemption is he, he chose, he elected, he predestined whom? Some. He predestined some before the foundation of the world. Then look at the role of the Son in redemption. We see that the role of the Son in redemption is that He executes the redemption. He executes the redemption. Look at verse 7. Paul goes on In Him we have redemption through His blood. Let me ask you a question The blood of the Father or the blood of the Son? The blood of the Son. 
pay close attention to these personal pronouns. So we have redemption through the shed blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. What is the son's role in redemption? He dies on a wooden cross. Be very careful when you pray that you don't pray prayers that are foreign to Scripture. And some of you have heard me talk about this. I've heard dozens and dozens and dozens of times, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for my sins. The Father did not die on the cross for our sins. Jason, I I so appreciate your prayer uh, before the message this morning. I don't know if you picked up on it. And Jason is like, no, 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 don't draw attention to me. So we'll draw attention to the Trinity. Is the way Jason prayed was to the Father, the name of the Son, and the power of the Spirit. That's a biblical model of prayer. And then I want you to see the role of the Spirit in redemption. You see, the Holy Spirit now applies the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to the people of God. It emerges in verses 13 and 14 in Ephesians 1. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. One writer says, The Father purposes... The Son purchases, and the Holy Spirit effectively brings it to pass. This is how I feel this morning as I look out on a a sea of faces. I feel like I'm holding one speck of sand between these two fingers and another speck of sand between these two fingers, and you can scarce take any more. We have the whole rest of the beach to uncover, and here's the beauty of it. We won't get to the end of of the beach even unto all eternity. Why? Because we will always be finite. God will always be infinite. That is to say, if you think you can come to the end of the road in your your knowledge of God, think again. We will learn and learn and grow and grow and worship more and worship more unto all eternity. I remember I made a comment to my dad probably 25 years ago when I was a beginning youth pastor. And I'm ashamed that I made this comment. And I'm sure he was ashamed too, but he didn't say it like, he didn't indicate that to me. I said, Dad, what happens if I'm at a church and I get through the 66 books and I run out of material? Shame on me. Can you believe that? We will never run out of material. Why? Because God is infinite. His truth goes on and on and on. So I want you to see, just by way of overview, at two specks of sand, that the members of the Trinity work harmoniously to secure your salvation. Where the Father chooses some, the Son effectively pays for All those whom the Father chose, and then the Spirit brings it to pass. He brings it to pass by guaranteeing your salvation and applying the work of Jesus Christ to your account. You say, so what? How does this make a difference in my life? Look finally 
at the response to the Trinity. How should we respond to this intense truth? There are three things I'd leave with you today. First, I would encourage you. I would plead with you to embrace the Trinity. For when the Trinity is discarded, as I've already indicated, the Christian faith and the Christian worldview collapses. One writer puts it this way, God reveals himself as triune. Therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity cannot be a footnote to Christian theology. It must be at its heart. And when John Feinberg uttered those words, it really struck me because he's making a plea. Don't make the doctrine of the Trinity a a, a footnote to what you do at church. But here's what I've discovered. Most churches these days, they don't even have a footnote section. You don't even hear about the Trinity. Where at Christ Fellowship, we want to pray to the Trinity. We want to praise the Trinity. We want to worship the Trinity. We want to tell the community. We want to tell the nations about the triune God. To do any other would be to be unfaithful in the Christian life. Second, I would urge you to find joy. Find your joy in the Trinity. And even though we will look at John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, way into the future, would you look at it with me now just to get a glimpse of where we are headed? John chapter 17, verse 24. If you have never read this verse or never read this verse with a, a certain set of presuppositions, a certain set of eyes, I pray that you would do as such this morning. Jesus prays to whom in John chapter 17? The Father. He prays to the Father. And here's what he says. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. Bree. Grace. Sam. April. Spud. Lori. Les. Patty. Ken. Tammy. Wow, I know you people. I desire that they also whom you have given me will discover later that is the elect and only the elect. Those whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here is the essence of Jesus prayer. O father. Would you enable all those whom you have given me to to see what I see, to enjoy what I enjoy, to be where I am with you and feast at your amazing, majestic, awesome glory. Can you believe that? That Jesus prayed that for you? And so find your joy in the Trinity. Finally, I want to encourage you to worship the Trinity. Some of you have never heard that expression to worship the Trinity. At the end of Romans chapter 11, you recall that Romans is, is divided into two chunks. Chunk number one is chapter, chapters 1 through 11, verse 36. That's the theological chunk. Then chapter 12 through chapter 16, that is the, the practical application chunk. So when Paul gets to the end of the theology chunk, 
11 chapters, he says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him belong the, the glory forever and ever. Amen. One writer says that we grow in our understanding of God's grace as we see how each person of the Trinity interacts with the others to bring us out of darkness into light. Let me tell you that in order for us to establish a biblical worldview, we must acknowledge the Holy Trinity, the one God who reveals himself in three persons. I don't have the truth point on the PowerPoint for you this morning, but let me give it to you like this. The truth point is we must rejoice. We are called to rejoice in the triune God. Jean-Paul Sartre put it this way, the basic philosophic question is that there is something there rather than nothing being there. But he went on to make this insightful statement. It is an amazing thing when a, a conservative Baptist pastor can use an atheist to make his point. This will blow you away. Sartre said, no finite point has any meaning unless it has an infinite reference point. When I first read that quote, I could not believe my eyes. Because as far as we know, Sartre was an atheist to his dying day who never found that infinite reference point that we know is the triune God. So I want to ask you today, is the Holy Trinity, is he your infinite reference point? You see, the basic philosophic quest ever since the time of the, the Socratic thinkers and the pre-Socratic thinkers is the answer that they refer to as the answer of the, the one and the many or the, the unity and diversity. The Holy Trinity resolves once and for all the tension to this philosophical problem. Francis Schaeffer puts it this way. He said, we need a personal unity and diversity. Without this, we have no answer. Christianity, however, has this in the Trinity. Schaeffer went on to say that you can search through university philosophy, underground philosophy, filling station philosophy. It doesn't matter. There's no other sufficient philosophical answer to existence, to being. Remember ontology? To being than the one that I have outlined. There is only one philosophy, one religion that fills this need in all the world's thought, whether it's the East or the West, the ancient, the modern, the new, the old. Only one fills the philosophical need of existence, of being, and that is the Judeo-Christian God. Not just an abstract concept, but rather that this God is really there. He exists. Schaefer says that every once in a while in my discussions, someone will ask, how can you believe in the Trinity? And my answer is always the same. Schaefer says, I would still be an agnostic if there were no Trinity, because there would be no answers. Without the high order of personal unity and diversity as given in the Trinity, there are no answers. My final question is this. Have you come to the place in your life where you can say, God is God, and I am not. 
God is God, and I am not. If the Trinity does not exist, you have no hope of existence, for the Trinity is your only infinite reference point. Have you resolved in your heart this morning, have you resolved in your heart and your mind that ultimate meaning Ultimate happiness, ultimate joy, ultimate life comes from Jesus who said in John 10, I came that they may have life and life abundantly. Have you encountered the one who claimed to be the embodiment of truth itself? Let's pray together. Father, we recognize this morning that we we have not even skimmed the surface. And so I pray that you would give each of us understanding. I pray that you would help us to to walk through the, the various truths that have been presented so that we would know you, the living God. Lord Jesus, thank you that you faithfully came to this earth. We thank you that you uh, were born of the Virgin Mary, that you lived uh, a life that we could never live, that you died a death that each of us deserved to die. And Holy Spirit, thank you for applying the work of Jesus to the hearts of your people. I pray that you would do just that today for a person who has never uh, bent the knee to the God of the universe. So, Father, do your uh, good work today. I pray that you would encourage us in this doctrine, encourage us as we move forward to uncover more of your majestic character. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. Three years ago, I was still a high school student, and I received word that one of my favorite singers had uh, been in a, a plane crash with a few of his, his boys, and uh, his name was Keith Green, and he wrote that song that we just sang with his wife, Melody. Keith Green believed in the Holy Trinity. Now, Keith Green is in the presence of the Holy Trinity from all eternity. I trust you'll be there with him and with the Trinity, worshiping for all eternity. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for um, what we've experienced today in this place. Thank you for the chance to worship you. We recognize that it is a, a command to worship you, but it is not only a command, it is a, an unbelievable privilege. We recognize now that you created us to glorify and worship you. And so when we do just that, we fulfill the very reason for our existence, for our being. So may we find delight today for the rest of our lives in the Holy Trinity. May we go deeper into the Trinity in our understanding as we grow in our depth of worship. May your people here at Christ Fellowship grow uh, ever so deeply into the soil of your grace. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen.